When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. John, before we start, yes, John. I just want to say that your welcome made Stockholm's welcome look like shit. <laughs> uh, and then we're not going to pander to Amsterdam like this. Either, yeah, yeah. Just so you know, pandering is real. global. You don't know. <laughs> Hello, Oslo, and welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Uh, we are very happy to be here. We uh, apologize in advance for whatever crazy shit our president is about to say to your prime minister <laughs> during their meeting today. We John, already spelled your name wrong in a yeah, press I be- release. <laughs> I believe the White House has already referred to your country as Normway. Um, it's not a joke. <laughs> so we are, yeah, that's true. John, that was a statement. I'm We're hearing that in a sorry. terrible faux pas. Uh, your prime minister did reach for a drumstick from the bucket of KFC first. Uh, that's very... And, that does uh, anger him. He fired off a tweet. And unfortunately, you guys are now out of NATO. <laughs> that's a shame. We have some outstanding guests tonight. We'll be talking to Dr. Catherine Torlefson about the rise of right-wing nationalism and xenophobia. Uh, we'll also be talking to Jan Strumnes, who helps run what Time Magazine has called the best prison in the world right here in Norway. Uh, guys, Crooked Media has also launched a brand new podcast today. What? Called Keep It by Ira Madison III. It talks about culture and politics. It is hilarious. So Great. please go subscribe and check it out. Subscribe. Subscribe. <laughs> check it out. Let's start with President Trump, as we often do here, who we like to call the master dealmaker back mm-hmm. in America. He is our master dealmaker. Um, so right now, Democrats are trying to pass a law that would offer a pathway to citizenship for the 800,000 young immigrants uh, known as Dreamers who were brought to America as children and lived in our country their entire lives. If Congress does not reach a deal soon on this, these young Americans will be deported since Trump eliminated the protections that Obama had granted them. So, Democrats want to vote in Congress on a clean bill that will offer citizenship to the Dreamers, uh, which is what Trump and the Republicans originally promised to do back in the fall. Trump and the Republicans are saying they will only help the Dreamers if they get funding for Trump's stupid wall, 
and also steps to reduce legal immigration in America. Hey, John, what's a clean bill? Is that something that's well-defined in Washington? Right, so a clean bill is basically just... They just, they just want a vote. They want one vote on this one piece of legislation Got it. with nothing else attached. Got it. Okay. And everyone, everyone knows this in Washington, of course. Right. When you These say a clean bill on an issue, it means we just want the bill on that one issue and you don't dirty it up with other issues. Right. That's what it always means, 100% of the time. So this is all by way of saying, <laughs> so this brings us to yesterday at the White House, where Donald Trump held a live, televised, 55-minute meeting with Democrats and Republicans to negotiate a deal. The idea here was to show the world that Trump is uh, a very stable genius <laughs> and, uh, and not a uh, dotty old racist who's in decline. <laughs> Now, before we talk about this, we actually have a bit of a clip cool. about the meeting. Now for a segment we call, OK, stop. Uh, <laughs> Here's how it works. We roll a clip when we want to stop it. We say, okay, stop, and then we talk about it. This week on OK Stop, uh, we have uh, footage from this meeting. This was a meeting to do two things. One, demonstrate that the president could speak in coherent sentences. Uh, and and no, that he knew people's names, but yeah, then that, that, was, that was undercut by the fact that you'll see there's name tags, but yeah, it's okay. That he wasn't gripped by some combination of senility and mental disorder. Uh, which is where we're at, so this is supposed to be the proof point for them. And then the second piece was the debate about how to handle DACA and how Republicans and Democrats would come together on a deal, which brings us to this clip and Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who is a Democrat. Uh, Get some Feinstein fans here. Feinstein heads. Let's roll the clip. What about a clean DACA bill now uh, with a commitment that we go into a comprehensive immigration reform procedure like we did back, or I remember when Kennedy was here. Uh, I have no problem. I, I think that's basically what Dick is saying. We're going to come out with DACA. We're going to do DACA, and then we can start immediately on the phase two, which would be comprehensive. Would you be agreeable to that? Yeah, I would like, I would like to do that. Go ahead. I think a lot of people would like to see that. But I think we have to... Okay, stop. What you're seeing is a Republican member of Congress realizing that Senator Dianne Feinstein just said, let's do the Democrat version, and Donald Trump said, yes. <laughs> sure. And you can start, start hearing the, those gasps around the table <laughs> are the Republican lawmakers thinking, uh, he just fucked us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fucked us again. And all the Democrats are like, shh, everyone be quiet. Yeah, see, see, look at, look at Dick, Denny Hoyer and Dick Durbin right there, two Democrats. Their faces are yeah, just yeah. like, shh. Dick Durbin's like, shut the fuck up. This is like, um, <laughs> like, like they just sold Donald Trump a car for three times the price they thought <laughs> that it was worth, and they just can't believe it. Mr. President, you, you need to be clear, though. I, th I think what Senator Feinstein's asking here... Okay, stop. When we talk... So... <laughs> So that's a really perfect moment. I think we need to be clear here. And uh, what he's really saying is, I think you need to say the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> and then this, when this he said... Kevin McCarthy. He's a Republican from California. He's a, he's a leadership in the House. He's also very stupid himself. <laughs> he's the one who undercut the entire investigation against Hillary Clinton's emails by being like, look at what it did to her poll numbers. That's right. the only and, reason we right. care. And once that investigation was undercut, it was smooth sailing for her. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
we don't want to be back here two years later. You have to have security, as the secretary would tell you. But I think that's what you say. Okay, stop. <laughs> uh, that is not what she said. <laughs> That is not what no. she said. She doesn't She's, think that's what she said. She no. said, the, she said the, uh, again, the, uh, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. She's saying something different. No, I think a clean DACA bill to me is a DACA bill where we take care of the 800,000 people. They're actually not necessarily young people. Everyone talks about young. You know, they could be 40 years old, 41 okay, years old. Okay, stop. <laughs> He's lost the thread. <laughs> lost the thread. That's, by the way, that's, that is, they say they're young. It's, uh, it's his way of saying, yeah, they came here as children, but they kept getting older. Yeah. <laughs> these immigrants, there's, and these immigrants having birthdays. <laughs> there's, there's also no more perfect Washington moment than five 70-year-old white guys telling a woman in the room what she just said. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, to me, a clean bill is a bill of DACA, we take care of them, and we also take care of security. Okay, That's stop. A- you just you mis- made it not a clean bill. Many hailed this, what do you call it, a meeting? Yeah. Uh, as you see, he has a vocabulary of a few hundred words. Uh, he vaguely is aware of the issue, though not its uh, subtler points. <laughs> One media organization said that this meeting showed that Donald Trump was the post-partisan leader, bigger than Republican or Democrat, who'd overwhelm Washington through the sheer strength of stagecraft and deal-cutting genius. This was that moment. I want you guys to know that... That was Axios, obviously. What, what, you, what you saw in that clip was the promise of the Trump presidency. That's the best he can do. And it was... Uh, we pick on Axios. CNN, like, media organ... Politico, media organization after media organization, they all looked at that meeting, they're like, well, this Michael Wolff book said that he's crazy, but he wasn't crazy in that meeting. Yeah, he was, he just, was just ignorant. Wrong. He was yeah. just ignorant and unformed. The, 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 <laughs> but, the revelation that everyone around him, including his own children, think he's an idiot, doesn't mean he can't sit quietly for most of a 55-minute meeting, because that's what he did there. I would say, like, thank God for the Washington Post, who got it right, and they wrote in their lead, in this meeting, Trump showed stability, not necessarily capability. Uh. <laughs> Shout out Thank Ashley you, Parker. Washington Post. Is that so hard, everyone else? Yeah, you know, nailed there, it. There were also a few uh, conservatives on, uh, on the Twitter machine that said <laughs> something on the lines of, you can't imagine, Barack Obama never had a meeting like this. And then uh, several people pointed out that he actually did a multi-hour healthcare roundtable with Republicans and Democrats, where he not only did this, he actually was aware of every facet of the policy being debated. And one yeah. of my, one hack who is a, uh, someone who's like tried to become Trump's press secretary on several occasions. And David Martosco, I believe. Yes, and never got the job. He actually said, I wasn't offered to it and I didn't agree to it. I said, hold on, which one was it? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he said something like, yeah, obviously Obama had this meeting, but it was not to prove he was mentally stable. <laughs> and, that, and, and he judged that as a win. Yeah. Like, that, that was the win for him. Yeah. I mean, to me, doesn't this clip basically confirm the central thesis of Michael Wolff's book, which is that Trump has no fucking idea what he's doing? Like, we can focus on the mental stability stuff or not, but but the the insight in that book is that, like, the guy has no grasp 
of any policy issues, right. nor has he tried to learn them. There's a classic film in the United States, just a, a legendary film called Weekend at Bernie's, where two young men, <laughs> two young they men, had, they got that here. You've seen that here. <laughs> two handsome young men. There's boats involved. They drag around a corpse and they make it move, and they achieved that in that video. <laughs> weekend at Bernie's is an entire weekend. This was an hour, but you know, great success. So I just want to make one serious point about this, which is, I, I think ultimately the debate around whether or not, you know, is he mentally stable? Is he we're showing the signs of senility? I think the the reality is whether or not that's true, and I, I, it may be very well true, and it's frightening. There's actually not that much of a difference between someone who's spent a lifetime rejecting curiosity, rejecting learning, and and following a pattern of thought that says he knows everything and doesn't need to know another thing, and someone. Who doesn't have the mental capacity anymore to retain new information because they're in mental decline? I mean, Donald Trump, whether or not it's his brain or whether or not it's his own habits, he does not have the capacity to do the job, and he never did. He didn't have it in 2015. He didn't have it in 2010. He's never had it. So, end of thought. <laughs> well, so <laughs> one more funny point on this: after the meeting, the White House. Released the official transcript of the entire meeting, and one phrase was somehow left out of that transcript, which was Donald Trump's answer to Dianne Feinstein when she asked, "Would you like to do a clean DACA bill?" And he said, "Yeah, I would like to do it." Somehow that didn't appear in the transcript. <laughs> It's uh, the the, alt, the transcript、Whoops. they released said,、uh, "What shall we do on immigration? Crosstalk, crosstalk. So we'll build a wall." <laughs> <laughs> So the que- question now, guys: Look, what do Democrats have to do to get this deal done? Because it does seem like、uh, negotiating with a deal master over here it doesn't really get you anywhere because Trump's telling people what they want to hear. Sometimes he's telling people, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans, in the same room what they want to hear in two different sentences. Right. And there's a, a very real question of. How engaged will he really be? What he's told that room essentially is: if you guys can cut a deal and get something done, I won't get in the way. But he still has Rasputin, Santa Monica fascist Stephen Miller, fresh off his Sunday Show appearances, embarrassing himself in front of the entire country,、uh, doing his best to undercut the process. So, yeah. You know. So I'm glad you brought that up. Bloomberg, I think, reported that Republicans in Congress who are working on this deal with Democrats, both the Republicans and the Democrats, are saying. That every time they come close to negotiating a deal on this,、um, Stephen Miller at the White House keeps fucking it up by inserting these poison pills into the deal that he knows Democrats would never go for. What are his preferred poison pills these days? So <laughs> it's just—it's basically all these measures to like drastically cut back on legal immigration. And right before we came on stage,、um, the White House released a statement that said. You know there will be no deal for the Dreamers、uh, um, unless there is, you know, the end of the visa lottery system, the end of chain migration, and full funding for the border walls. Yeah, I mean, so this is. So it's hard to figure out now what what happens next. Right. I mean, even that is a change in position. Not. I mean, those are positions Donald Trump has taken, but. He says, on the one hand, I'll support whatever deal you guys come to, and then the bad cop, his、yeah. immigration hardliners, say, "Here's what a deal has <clears> to require." And ultimately, it seems clear that Trump would sign whatever came across his desk. So when the White House says, when the White House puts out a statement that said there can't be, a, we won't support a deal unless it has X, Y, or Z, the only reason that's true is if Republicans in Congress 
say it's true. Right. right. Um, and it's ultimately a bluff, but the question is, the White House demanding it isn't what matters. What matters is whether or not Republicans in Congress decide they can use that to get it in there and, and then lay it, lay it at the feet of the president. Yeah, again, a, a normal, truly bipartisan deal here would be, you know, Democrats want a clean vote to offer citizenship to the Dreamers, and Republicans get some additional border security funding. They don't get the wall, they don't get, you know, all the cuts to legal immigration that they want, but they get a little more security funding. That's what, and Republicans and Democrats both know that that would be the bipartisan deal. And what Miller keeps doing is every time they get close to that, he throws in these extreme measures that he knows are going are to screw up the deal. So that's where we are now. So the, the option for the Democrats is to say, okay, well, we have to fund the government by January 19th. You need our votes. And unless you actually put the DREAM Act on the floor for a vote, then we will not get our votes to fund a government that's going to deport 800,000 young Americans. Right. Yeah. And so. the compromise could end up being that there is some additional money for border security tucked into that. Trump can claim a win and say, here's my wall. We'll say, no, it's not. You're full of shit. And we'll move on, because that's what we do in Washington. Yeah, and, and, and that's where, and I'm sure there's a lot, I'm sure there's probably some people in the White House and many Republicans who want him to get to that point. Because yeah, they don't want this. No one, no one wants to keep fighting on this issue. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, this is not a new debate. You know, Trump brings his chaos and villains to the table, but... Ultimately, we've been having this same debate about immigration for the better part of two decades. I mean, this is, this is the, contour of the contours of the debate uh, when George W. Bush was pursuing comprehensive immigration reform. It's the con these are the contours of the debate when Barack Obama was uh, pursuing immigration reform. So ultimately, if there is going to be a compromise, it will be uh, some balance between legalization and security. And Democrats should continue to draw their line on that. They should draw their line on on DACA, they should draw the line on children's health insurance and a few other key priorities. And the only thing standing between us and a deal is whether or not Republicans actually want one. Right. So, and what everyone listening at home can do is to make sure you call your senators, your Democratic senators, and make sure that they do not vote on any long-term deal to fund the government that would also fund the deportation of these Americans and take away health insurance, by the way, from nine million kids because they don't um, extend the children's health insurance program, which is also part of the negotiations. So make sure, call your Democratic senators and make sure that uh, they stand with the Dreamers and not with uh, Santa Monica fascist Stephen Miller. Um, <laughs> speaking... Speaking of fascists. Speaking of useless fascists. <laughs> yes. Great Steve segue. Bannon stepped down on Tuesday. <laughs> from his post as executive chairman of Breitbart. It's just a great failure that we even know his name, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Tough couple months for Steve, fired from the White House, loses a Senate election in Alabama, disavowed by Donald Trump, and now fired from Breitbart. And ladies, he's single. <laughs> um... We hear that one of the reasons he was finally forced out is the Mercers uh, did it. The Mercers are a family who funds Breitbart. They're a bunch of right-wing lunatics. They fund a lot of the Trump campaign. They fund all kinds of horrible things. And I guess they were sick of Steve's antics. Uh, what does this mean for Breitbart now? Is Breitbart good now? No. <laughs> Breitbart going to turn itself around? Breitbart is not good. I mean, look, it, 
Steve Bannon made the cardinal sin of thinking he was more important than the office of the presidency or that he was an indispensable staffer. And Washington goes through cycles. It happened with people in the Obama White House, the Bush White House. No one is, is indispensable. That place will open its doors the next day, whether you're there or not. And you have to be, you have to be self-aware about that when you go in. And what Steve Bannon was was an opportunist who was well-funded by his little pet billionaires. And he monetized fascism and racism and was in the right place in the right time and used it to manipulate the U.S. political system. And it is fantastic to see him fall on his face, but I wish it was not because he told the truth about Don Jr. being a moron and Jared Kushner being a fucking moron, and that it was, you know, that he was uh, excised from Washington because he was a racist, nationalist, you know, peddler of grievance politics that has done enormous damage to the country. So... I'm like, the outcome is great, but, you know, the, the, it's not, the victory doesn't feel as good as it probably should. <laughs> a quick shout out. There's a company, there's a, there's a group of folks who are anonymous who run a Twitter feed called Sleeping Giants. And what they've done is one by one by one, let everyone know that if you um, have programmatic advertising, that you're advertising on Breitbart. So check them out. They're on Twitter. They've got 3,500 some on advertisers to drop Breitbart and other uh, sites supporting hate speech, so support them. Yeah. Well, also, I'm glad you brought that up. So Bloomberg reported that the advertising boycott against Breitbart by Sleeping Giants has had such an impact that the Mercer family is basically Breitbart's only source of funding now because all these advertisers have pulled out. And so um, one of the reasons they finally pushed Bannon out is because the Mercers were sick of picking up the bill for Breitbart all by themselves because all of these advertisers pulled out. So the Sleeping Giants campaign that they launched a couple months, that started launching earlier last year, um, it's really worked. Yeah, these dickheads buy 500-foot yachts, but yeah, they're upset about picking up the Breitbart tab, but whatever, I'm happy. (laughs) So the question is... Tommy's not not really, uh, (laughs) not letting that win in. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had a question here, Tommy. Would you like to spike the football? You've, and, uh, you didn't Honestly, yeah. he didn't want to. <laughs> He's Very a bigger man than that. Wise I pivoted. tonight, Tommy. Yes. He pivoted to rage. Circumspect. I mean, the question is sort of what becomes of Bannonism, you know, uh, Trumpism, Breitbartism. Like, you know, who carries the flag for this uh, shitty politics? It's a brand of politics right now. Uh, we saw yesterday that Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, pardoned uh, by Trump despite torturing inmates uh, is now running for Senate in Arizona. I, like, do we think that there's going to be more candidates like, like him? Do you think they're just, you know, what do you I think, think is going to happen? Love it. I think yes. I think that Steve Bannon was an opportunist. He, didn't, he, didn't, he certainly didn't invent uh, the effectiveness of racial grievance in American politics. Um, he did figure out ways to weaponize it in innovative ways and in ways to monetize through Breitbart, et cetera. But I think Virginia, I mean, gives you a picture, hopefully, of the future. You look at the, the racial grievance politics that Ed Gillespie adopted to try to win, and it wasn't really a natural fit for him. And it's actually not true to say that it was totally ineffective. It was very, very effective amongst the people it was targeted at. But it cost him more than it helped him. It turned off a lot of people. It turned off the people that are the growing populations of America. It turned off suburban Republicans. Uh, it turned off the people that Democrats and need to win and that, I, you know, I wouldn't even call them moderate Republicans, but Republicans that aren't nationalists need to win. So 
you will see people like Roy Moore be able to harness that kind of aging population of voters to win primaries. It also makes it harder for them to win the general. You'll see people like Arpaio be threatening to the Republican Party, but I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for them to win outside of those primaries in anything that's not a blood-red state, like a, you know, even Alabama could have gone to Roy Moore had he not had those allegations. Beyond that, I'm not really sure, uh, except that it's a potent force for a yeah. lot of people, and it has dragged our politics to a really negative place and shifted the Republican Party to the right, and that you, know, you guys here, you have multiple parties, and so these things sort themselves out differently. Inside of our Republican Party, we have this nationalist front, we have this more conservative Christian element, and we have this corporate Republicanism, and what we have seen is just how easily it was for the nationalist wing of the party to, to co-opt people like Paul Ryan, uh, or, or vice versa for Paul Ryan to co-opt that front towards his end. So that continues to be something we have to take very seriously. Yeah, I, mean, I think these, these guys are emboldened. They'll continue to run. Breitbart was a potent platform for them. If you look at the sort of web traffic history from the 2016 election, a lot of Breitbart stories moved around a lot. So they will continue to find platforms. The Daily Caller, Infowars, the Scaramucci Post, you know, the Tucker greatest Carlson. hits. Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Taking off like light. <laughs> yeah. You know, Sean Hannity is a terrible hack, right? He's on Fox News every night, and he just repeats whatever Donald Trump wants. He gives him the questions in advance. Tucker Carlson is quietly doing something even more insidious. You know, he is doing kind of Breitbart on television every night and showing that there's an audience for him. Yeah. I, I do I worry about media figures like Tucker and politicians like Tucker who sort of try to sand some of the edges off of this because they're a little bit smarter, and yet yeah. it's still the same exact insidious politics. I mean, what do you... And it's still the same message. Mm -hmm. Look, 100,000 votes go a different way. We, are, we have spent the last year talking about how this kind of racial grievance, nationalist politics flamed out Death in America. Rattle, yeah. But that's not what happened. I mean, do, what do you think... I mean, look, Donald Trump is going to continue to use this. I mean, are we too sanguine even now about this? I don't think we are. I mean, I think we're pretty worried about it. I'm worried about it. Um, I think that in Donald Trump, we would have an even more dangerous president if he was smarter. And if he had people like Steve Bannon around him who weren't as showboaty and as Steve Bannon is and, and sloppy, sloppy Steve, sloppy as Steve. Steve Bannon was. Um, and if you have a few smarter minds around you and you have a leader who is a little bit smarter, like I think someone like a Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, says a lot of the same things and believes a lot of the same things as you see on Breitbart and that, and that Donald Trump believes. And I think there's a real danger. If you start running politicians in some of these races who aren't, you know, like pardoned fucking criminals like Joe Arpaio or child molesters like Roy Moore, but who really believe this stuff, not pretend to believe it like an Ed Gillespie in Virginia, um, you know, you, there's some potency to that. Yeah, immigration is a, is a potent issue. Uh, that's why the Republicans are viewing this DACA conversation with such trepidation. I think Democrats who look at data and look at opinion polls and have seen that change over time are fearful of what this debate could mean in terms of exacerbating xenophobia and, and challenges right. for the party. So I think it's all a piece of one puzzle and we should be worried and working on it. Yeah, stay vigilant. Okay, I want to move on to a topic that... Uh, it cannot be avoided any longer. Now, all of you know that here at Crooked Media, uh, we will be laser-focused on the 2018 elections for this entire year, and you should be too. But, because you've all been so well-behaved, we will go ahead and spend just a few minutes indulging the global hysteria that is known as Oprah 2020. <laughs> yeah. 
Don't applaud that. <laughs> Love it. When are you leaving to run her campaign? <clears throat> the second somebody over there replies to an email. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, just obviously background. All of this started at the Golden Globe Awards when Oprah delivered um, what I think was one of the more powerful hopeful speeches uh, that I've heard in years. Certainly one of the most powerful hopeful speeches about the Me Too movement and its place in American history. This, of course, raised questions about whether she would run for president because you can't just leave a good speech alone. You have to <laughs> immediately go there. Um, and That's no, where we're at. <laughs> if you give a good speech, watch out. <clears throat> you're going to be president. Um, and, you know, in fairness, the reason that the media took off with this is when Oprah and many of her close friends, you know, were asked about whether she'd run for the very first time, they did not offer a blanket denial and refusal. For the first time, they said, okay, she is actually thinking about it. So... What do you guys think? Look, to paraphrase our president, there are stupid takes on both sides. Um, <laughs> I think the people that watch one speech and are willing to sort of jump on board and say she's our savior, that's a little bit silly. I think there's another school of thought that's like, where is Oprah on drone strikes? <laughs> okay, we can get there too. There's a, there's a whole process for this. Um, what I think is cool and compelling about Oprah is her life story and her humanity and her empathy that came through in that speech and that we are so fucking sorely lacking in our government and our politics right now because of this monster who just thinks about everything in terms of himself. So to, to see someone that successful, that self-made, that empathetic and that human despite living on this other plane for the last however many years is pretty cool. So run if you want to run, Oprah. Yeah, I think we have a facile debate about experience. You know, Political experience is very important, and if she were to run, that would be a question she'd have to answer, right? You don't, haven't been in politics. It's different than running a company. What are your policy platforms? Why haven't you been involved before? Et cetera, et cetera. Those are questions she would have to answer. But she has the business experience that Donald Trump claimed and never had. She's the self-made person that Donald Trump claimed to be and never was, and she lacks many of the traits uh, that make him so dangerous, obviously. So in a lot of ways, you know, she represents the promise of a person from the corporate world as president that Donald Trump pretended to have all yeah. along. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I have no idea if she'll run. I have no idea if she'll be a good candidate, if she'd be a good president. It certainly gives me pause that she has no government experience. But it also really bothers me um, when people say, oh, this is like the liberal version of Trump. This is a liberal fever game. You know what? If you ask me to list a dozen reasons why Donald Trump is a bad president, being a celebrity with no experience would be at the fucking bottom. Okay? Yes. If, if, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump had served in the United States Senate for 50 years, he would still be a racist, he would still be a sexist, he would still be a liar, and he still wouldn't know shit about anything that he's talking about. You know, it's just like... And, and she is, she's not just a celebrity talk show host. That's, it's almost offensive to just like dismiss her as a celebrity talk show host. This is a woman who climbed out of poverty, escaped sexual abuse, became a journalist, a successful journalist, and then became the most successful African-American businesswoman in the world. That is a, that's, a, that's a big qualification. And it's like, and the other thing is, this is what campaigns are for. It's to test this out. If her lack of experience bothers you, don't support her. You know, if you don't agree with her on all her policy positions when she finally tells us her policy positions, then don't support her. You know, like, if she's done something in her career that you don't like, 
don't support her. The but secret, Dr. Oz, Dr. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> right. anti-vaccination, Suzanne Summers. She's got some shit to answer for, too. She does. This is not an Oprah hagi- hagiography. No. She, just like every other candidate, she will have to answer all those questions and she better have good fucking answers if she wants to win. But like, that's what the purpose of the campaign is. And like, underlying all of this worry is this idea that if for some reason we allow this candidacy to happen, then we will all be brainwashed by the celebrity of Oprah and we'll all just follow her anywhere, yeah. which doesn't say a lot of... It, it basically well, says that the Democrats are going to act just like Republicans did with Donald Trump. Yes, I think, I think that we're all still dealing with the emotional fallout of our worst person becoming president. And it scrambled our brains a little bit. And so I think we get, we're, we're all worried that, you know, we're going to focus on 2018, but when we think about 2020, we will know that we will be heading into the most consequential presidential election, maybe in, in American history. And we know that Democrats will only have one shot to get it right, and there will be reasons to not be for anyone who gets in the ring. And it's a really important decision. Because Donald Trump won, I think there's this fear that we could go down the same dark path. But so I think that there's a question to ask, which is pretty easy. Would nominating someone like Oprah be a good idea if Donald Trump had never come along? And my view is the answer may be yes, it may be no, but neither one is obvious. It's not obvious whether it's a good idea or a bad idea yet. And so everybody should just calm but it's, down. Yeah, it's because it's it bothered me not just because of the Oprah thing, but like, are we going to do this... God, man, we have not started off on the right foot in debating 2020 candidates so far. Because, you know, it's like, we've got, let them all campaign. Go hear them speak. Learn their policy positions. And then decide for yourself whether you like the person or not. The great sin of the 2016 election coverage was when you looked at, like, the network news broadcast that policy issues got, like, three minutes versus 30 hours on electability or polling or whatever, you know? And... Uh, this little mini fever about Oprah is just sort of the latest turn in that crank. So, you know, feels like lessons not learned, you know. Lessons yeah, not learned. And, and just, I think there is legitimate fear that celebrity swamps substance. But and there should be. Celebrity shouldn't swamp, swamp stu- and substance. We'll, but, I don't want to take that position. But, but everyone acts like a, it's again this, this problem that that's flows from the media, which treats us like not like voters, but as pundits. Yeah doesn't treat us as people making a decision about who we're for, but gives us the information about who other people are thinking about picking. And so before anyone has said to themselves, who do I like? They say to themselves, who are other people liking and are they right or wrong about that? Who should I like? Who can win? And people, we can take time to say to ourselves, who's the candidate that I think would be the best president? And I don't know if it's Oprah. We have a ton of great candidates. And Oprah may not even run. It's so far away. But people, I think, are so spooked by how the election unfolded in 2016 that they are ready to pounce. Yeah. And I'll just say one last thing that we have been saying on Pod Save America since long before the Oprah buzz. Uh, The next Democratic nominee, whoever she or he may be, in fact, hopefully all the Democrats that run in 2018, they should be able to give a speech like Oprah did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, don't don't discount inspiration. and, And people should, Democrats should stop talking in talking points that sound like they're recycled from the DNC daily talking point email in 1995. Like, fucking try to inspire people. Try to move people. Try to persuade people. Try to tell stories like that. And one reason that she's getting all this attention is because she gave a speech like that and we haven't heard a lot of Democrats give speeches like that for a very long time. I think that's true. And I think the great test for anyone who is not Oprah, and let's there are many Which of them. Everyone. <laughs> We're uh, all not Oprah. <laughs> there is, may be some of you in this crowd who are not Oprah. Is to tell 
is to, is to be able to weave together a story that, that, that is inspiring, but that also gets into the kind of policies we need, to the kind of changes we need as a country, because ultimately, that if we are worried about being a celebrity culture, we need to, figure, we need to have people out there who are going to succeed in that celebrity culture by making a compelling argument, not just about inspiration, but about policy and economic changes and an economic argument that is powerful enough to overwhelm a system that is designed to make us not talk about issues. And that's really, really hard, but that's, that's going to be the person we need, whether it's to defeat Oprah or to defeat Donald Trump. It's weird to say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's enough of that, then. Enough of that. You think? I think, we're, I think yeah. I think we got it out of <laughs> yeah, our system. I think we're good. We okay. When we come back, we will be talking to Dr. Katherine Torlefson. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I. you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added okay, therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and Suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. We are very lucky to have as our first guest. Uh, She is a researcher from the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo, Dr. Catherine Torlefson. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Trosin, thank you for being here. Um, it's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You've done uh, extensive research on a very light, fun topic, which is far-right <laughs> a nativist extremism across Europe. What are the general conditions that breed this kind of extremism? And are there similarities in the places you've studied uh, that we can sort of see as warning signs? Well, one of the main drivers is obviously resistance towards immigration. And there's a big debate in the research circles about whether it's economic drivers or culture drivers. And I think this is too simple that caught me because it's actually both. So the places I worked, for instance, in the post-industrial heartlands of Hungary and England, you have people who experienced really long-term existential insecurity and a lack of jobs over time. Um, and they blame migrants and scapegoat migrants for various societal ills. Mm-hmm. Would you say that resistance to immigration is greater in places where there is economic dislocation, where people are suffering through economic crises, financial crises? Is, is that sort of a, 
you know, there's direct no, line you can draw? Or? There's no neat correspondence, because if you look at Switzerland or even Norway, so context of wealth and abundance, there's even the same processes, renationalization processes. Huh. So there's no neat correspondence. But there definitely, if you look at the French elections, the Brexit vote, they're definitely are represented in industrial heartlands and the lower educated people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have you seen parallels between the rise of the far right in Europe and that of the United States? There are clear parallels more over the perceived threat of demographic change. So we're the white people becoming a minority in our own land and we're feeling like strangers and so forth. So that's a parallel. Whereas I think in the US, the public debate is more concerned with issues of racism. Whereas across the European context, you will see more culturalist accounts. So issues of culture, religion, civilization being invoked. Syria and the associated refugee crisis. Is that a driver of the reemergence of some of these parties that is sort of singular at this point in time, or has it exacerbated a challenge that was already there? I would say the latter, because it created a perfect storm for some of these actors who had ownership to the anti-immigration message. So they could move that messaging from the margins into the mainstream and say, you know, this is what would be constant on, and now it's happening. And look, that's the external displaced Syrian who's threatening our security, our way of life, national identity, sovereignty. Mm-hmm. How much influence do individual leaders have on the growth of these movements? Do the leaders emerge from the movements or are the movements fueled by the leaders? Uh, well, both. I've studied UKIP and then you see have opportunist, charismatic leader like Nigel Farage who likes to refer to himself as Mr. Brexit. He played a massive role and his uh, chief advisor was obviously a Breitbart editor, Rahim Kassam, who also played a role in in pushing or translating those local grievances, socioeconomic grievances, into more politics of fear. So you have individual leaders that are very instrumental in the rise, but on the supply, so on the supply side, but mm-hmm. on the demand side, I would say that there was also a grievance in search for a leader in many mm-hmm. of these places. So when you look at France, Marine Le Pen has taken the extremism of her father and sort of sanded it down and removed the overt anti-Semitism and now it's this sort of new form of basically the same, but a you know, sort of different appearance. I think we've also seen that in the United States, like the KKK, they're not wearing white hoods anymore when they're in Charlottesville. They're wearing khaki pants and polo shirts and carrying tiki torches that they all bought at Target because they thought, <laughs> they thought that would look cool. Um, <laughs> do you think that that PR campaign and that sort of like sanding down of the edges helps them sell the message, is that going to make them more effective? It's key in processes of mainstreaming and recruitment and belonging because it's you know, providing a more sexy image, it's more available, Ray-Ban's khaki jeans, and it's potentially appealing to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also done research in Hungary where you see similar tendencies. So instead of the old fascist symbols, you would kind of wrap it up in a nicer bureaucratic suit appearance, but the radical message remained the same. Many supporters in the European far-right parties that have grown over the last few years have been younger. Um, What do you think the specific appeal to young people is to these movements? Well, these movements offer two things. So it's economic protectionism and it's cultural protectionism. Actually, a third, even the protection of civilization. And I think in a fast-changing world, so 
the key word is acceleration. There's been acceleration the last particular three decades. And I think for some people, those changes are just too much. And it's a way of scaling back the process of globalization. So, and of course, it can also just be powerful in terms of uh, identity creating processes. What's the generational divide here? Do you think, I mean, because some people will say, you know, as, as sort of the older people who are more resistant to immigration move on and the younger generation, which embraces diversity more, especially in our country, we like to think this, then these movements will go away. But then in other places, you do see sort of the rise of these movements among young people specifically. So what, how, how do you... Well, if you look at the Brexit vote, there was a clear generational divide. So older, right. older white men predominantly voting as well. But if you look, for instance, again, Hungary, you see urban, younger people, middle class voting as well. So I think that's also the worrying tendency when you have uh, younger people and their parents might have, for instance, Holocaust in living memory, but they still try to change history, the official historiography, or try to uh, minimize the role of the state, for instance, in, in genocide. There's a prominent Nazi whose name I just don't feel like saying in the United States who was doing a press conference outside of an event and he got punched in the face. And it started this big debate about whether views as virulent as Nazism need to be met with like literal force or if that's playing into their ideology and that this needs to be a broader debate about political views, even if they're completely abhorrent. I guess I'm in no way advocating violence, but I'm curious, like philosophically, if there is a way that these extremist parties have been met and their ideas fought against that has been more effective in some places than in others, so that maybe we can uh, follow that path. Well, I think, obviously, education is always key. So you need to recognize conspiratorial thinking. You need to recognize myths about migrants and minorities. And education is also key in creating opportunities, so globalize better, so that people that feel despair, that feel left behind, can actually feel a sense of inclusion. But for the neo-Nazi movements, um, it's, it's more difficult, because some of them are very hardcore believers, so it's very different, difficult to exit necessarily once you embodied and embrace that kind of ideology. When you look at the, you know, the rise of these movements in different places, are there any movements that have been sort of defeated or died out? Is there anything, what gives you hope as you, as you sort of look, look to the, uh, look to the yeah. future here? <laughs> so a message of hope. Um, well, I think in many places uh, I'm hopeful in terms of the millennials. Uh, for instance, during field work in, in Doncaster, a small town I lived in in Yorkshire, there were young people that were actually also embracing LGBT rights diversity. They were anxious about the lack of jobs, but they didn't go to the nativist rights. Hmm. Um, so there was definitely a generational gap on the ground. So their parents were afraid that their children might not have a future, so they were voting for exclusionary nationalism, but the, the younger people were more hopeful. Yeah. Dr. Torlofsson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? 
It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Guys, we're going to play a game, but before we do, I have an update. Ooh, breaking news. What's that? I have an update on the press conference between President Donald Trump and your prime minister. Oh, great. Norway. Norway? Norway. <laughs> we're calling it Norway now. Here's, uh, she did raise the Paris Climate Accords, and Donald Trump said the U.S. could conceivably re-enter the Paris Climate Accords. He feels very strongly about the environment. He also feels very strongly about repeating the last thing he heard. Uh, but <laughs> that's pretty good. Was, was Kevin McCarthy in the corner saying, uh, uh, sir, what, what sir, you I, meant I, was, what, what you meant. Sir, <laughs> sir, we have to be clear. Uh, uh, when asked about interviewing with Mueller, Trump said, no collusion. Uh, but he did say, he will see, we will see. On Mueller and on DACA, he reiterated, needing a wall as part of the deal. So those are the questions they got? Those are the questions they got. It's ongoing, but that's a real-time update. Look at that. Look at that. Not bad for a podcast. Not bad. (laughs) All right, you guys ready to play a game? Yeah. Yeah. Now for a game we call We're Not in the Prediction Business Anymore. (laughs) We had some fun talking about Oprah. It's candy to talk about 2020, but we're focusing on 2018 because... Talking about a presidential election this far out is ultimately a waste of time because things have a tendency to change far more than we expect. And so we're going to play a game tonight to make that clear. Would anyone out there like to play? We're not in the prediction business anymore. I believe Tanya is out there somewhere with a microphone. You're both in merch and he's pointing at you, so that's pretty good. Hi, what's your name? I'm Caroline. Caroline? Yeah. And where are you from? Here, Oslo. Uh, I mean, Halden, here in Norway. You sound like... I'm off to a good start. You sound like Jared Kushner in front of Congress. <laughs> okay, I'm a good company then. Well, I'm sorry. No, sorry, never mind, never mind. No, you're doing wonderfully. Uh, what is the name of the city from which you're from? Halden. Halden. Yes. Okay. It's like... It's like Holden, you just switched the O with the A instead. Holden. Holden. Yeah, yeah. Holden. Okay, okay. And what was your name again? Caroline. Caroline. I'm going to do better about that in the future. (laughs) So here's how the game works. We're going to pull from headlines and books and things that were written about people that were supposed to become president and did not. And it will be your job to suss out who we're talking about. All right? Are you ready, Caroline? Yeah, I'm ready. Caroline? Caroline. Do you pay close attention to American politics? I hope so. You're wearing the shirt. Yeah. I listen to you guys, so I'm fairly updated. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's our fault if she gets it wrong. Yeah, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. (laughs) Caroline with the blame shifting and the shiftiness. (laughs) (laughs) Now she's like Don Jr. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Oh, so fine. Let's play the game. Question number one. Time Magazine hailed this candidate as the right-wing answer to Barack Obama and put him on the cover. Which Republican were they talking about, and what did Time Magazine call him? Was it A? Jeb Bush, the Bush America will actually love. Was it B? Bobby Jindal, the New Orleans saint that can't be stopped. 
Was it C? Senator Marco Rubio, the Republican savior. Or was it D? Governor Chris Christie, the next big thing. <laughs> I don't know why they're laughing. You guys are children. <laughs> Bunch of Norwegian children. <laughs> I'm going to need an answer, Caroline. Uh, I don't remember this, so I'm going to go with C, Marco Rubio. Good. good Nailed answer. it. Very good. There he is. There it is. There it is. Uh. The Republican savior, Marco Rubio. How Marco Rubio became the new voice of the GOP. A voice so quiet, <laughs> you cannot hear it. If you can't see it at home, we have the time cover up. We will tweet it out, and we will tweet it at Marco Rubio, just so he remembers. Man. That's for you, Marco. Oh, Marco Rubio is not having the Senate career he imagined. <laughs> just hiding, just hiding from the news. Question number two. In 2006, John Harris and Mark Halperin published the book The Way to Win on who had the best chance to win the 2008 election and why. How many times was Barack Obama mentioned in that book? Was it A? One time in a chapter on the importance of experience. Was it B? Five times in a chapter on the importance of change. Was it C? Ten times in a chapter on rising diversity in youth in the United States. Or was it D? Zero times in no chapters because the book did not, in fact, know the way to win. I think I'm going to go with D. You were right. <laughs> that one was a comedy question with an easy answer. Let's face it, yeah. all right? So let's, so let's not one. get too cocky as we head no. into the final question. <laughs> that question was more for us than for you all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> question number three. The conservative website Red State ran with this confident headline, quote, this is the week that this candidate won the Republican nomination. Who was that candidate? Was it A? Jeb Bush, after referring to Donald Trump as chaos candidate, a devastating blow. <laughs> was it B? Ted Cruz, after his primary win in Wisconsin. Was it C? Marco Rubio, after he made fun of Donald Trump's hand size. Or was it D? Chris Christie, after yelling at a teacher at a state fair, which people thought was good? <laughs> My first thought was A, Jeb Bush. That's wrong. It was, in fact, Ted Cruz, after his primary win in Wisconsin, the article went on to say, victory will go to Cruz, the man who's run the best campaign and is indeed the best candidate, and history will look back at this week and the Wisconsin victory and other wins as the turning point. <laughs> Caroline, yes. you are two for three, yeah. which is very good, but none of those questions counted. Okay. This is the final question for which you will be playing for a hat. What is she playing for? You know what? It doesn't matter. Question <laughs> number four for Caroline. In the run-up to the 2016 election, many pundits were handicapping the odds of Hillary Clinton losing to Donald Trump. When one pundit was asked, Hillary can't lose this thing, can she? He insisted, not a chance. Who was this famously wrong pundit? Was it A? Chris Eliza, a.k.a. The Fix. Was it B? Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. Was it C? Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Or was it D, John? John Favreau <laughs> of Pod Save America. <laughs> Which was this person who just got this whole thing Which vapid so pundit? wrong? Dumbass. Who was it? What 
that Asshole. missed all the signals. I'm gonna go with, sorry, D, John Favreau. It was, it was D. Oh boy, Caroline from Halden. Halden. I knew it because you know what I did. I said. It's in Östfold. <laughs> what I did, how, to, how I retained it, I said Holden Caulfield, but with an A at the front. That's how I remembered it's, it. What's the county? Holden. No, that's the oh, city. Oh, the county. Oh, yeah, Östfold. Svalb. <laughs> you guys put some letters together. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's Eastfold, if you think of Game of Thrones or... Oh. oh, yeah. Where the White Walkers are. Yeah. Give it up for Caroline. <laughs> Thank, Thank you for playing. When we come back, we will be talking to Jan Strumnes, the deputy warden of Halden Prison in Halden, Norway. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Our next guest is the deputy warden of Halden Prison in Halden, Norway, Jan Strumnes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jan, you are the deputy head of Halden Prison, which is frequently referred to as the world's most humane maximum security prison. Can you walk us through what life is like as an inmate uh, at Halden, and, and what does it mean to be a humane prison? Okay. Well, first of all, let me say that, in a way, the only thing that's special about Halden Prison is the facilities. The way we work, the philosophy and the values that's common in, in the whole of Norway and actually in all the Scandinavian countries. So, but one of the principles that in a way you can uh, see being reflected in the architecture in Halden is the principle of normality as we call it. Meaning that life in prison should resemble life in the outside community as much as possible. So you will see for instance uh, small divided buildings around the area and that's to in a way, copy the everyday movement that you and I have. We, we leave work in the morning, go to work. If I need to go to the dentist or the doctor, I leave work, go to the doctor. So that kind of movement we also copied inside the prison. So that's one example about the principle of normality. So they go to work just as you and me, or go to school, and they were really locked in during the night. The rest of the day they are in, in activity. So they're using themselves physically and mentally, and uh, in a way, building a better future that way. You guys put a big focus and emphasis on reintegration, rehabilitation. How successful do you think um, you've been in uh, preparing prisoners to reenter society, and how easy or hard is it to measure that success? Uh, it's, it's hard to measure it uh, with regard to recidivism, because that's the ultimate goal, in a way, to, to compare recidivism 
in different countries. And, and you can't, in a way, compare directly the figures for Norway and the United States because they are measured differently. But what we, uh, and in Norway, we have a very low recidivism rate. It's approximately 20%. But what we see is um, that the inmates leave Halden prison in a quite different state that they had when they came into the prison. Because as soon as they come in, we start screening them, looking at their needs and their resources in life. We, uh, we uh, make up a future plan uh, between the officers and the inmates, and we start working on the issues that we have. If they have a drug problem, we can uh, offer them treatment. If they have some mental health issues, they will have treatment. If there are um, need training in school, I mean, based on the screening, we try to work on all the issues they have in life so they can they leave Halden in, in, a, in a better shape in a way. And we see that they, they do, definitely. Now, Norway's didn't always have prisons that were this humane. When and why did, did you make the decision, did Norway make the decision to move in this direction? Yeah. In the late 80s, uh, there was a kind of a troublesome time in the correctional service in, in Norway. Uh, there were riots in Oslo prison. Uh, there were two tragic deaths, murders of correctional officers. So the government found that, well, we had to make some choices here. In what direction would we like to go? When such tragic uh, things happen, the, the normal reaction would be to tighten security even more, what we call the static security, you know, guards, security glasses, fences, barbed wire, etc. So that was looked into as one option, and the op other option was to in a way, evolve the correctional service in a, in a more humane direction. And the Norwegian government chose the last one to, to go in a more humane direction and found that that would probably solve some of the issues that we had, uh, and it did, actually. Americans make up 4.6% of the world's population, but American prisons hold an estimated 22% of all incarcerated people. Again, it's estimated that 68% of prisoners released in 30 states in the U.S., uh, and this was in 2005, were arrested for a new crime within three years. So it seems obvious that for some reason we are incarcerating way too many people uh, and that our system isn't working when it comes to rehabilitation. You've been to a whole bunch of prisons in the U.S., you've studied them, you've met with wardens. What do you think we're doing wrong? I think revenge is an issue in the States. Not necessarily on individual levels when I spoke to wardens and officers, but on a systemic level, I think revenge is an issue. Uh, I think U.S. prisons create uh, an atmosphere of fear. Uh, it's my belief that, and, and my impression that the officers during their training, they are in a way taught that their, their, their life is at stage or, uh, or, or they're risking their life every day at work. And of course, that creates fear. You don't see the inmates as individuals, but as a group that you fear. And, and when you create that kind of distance, you have, in a way, taken away some of the humane approach that you really, really need. You need to have a humane, respectful dialogue with the inmates. So what we do in Norway is not really rocket science. We just have these values. No, it's not. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's basically just treating people humanely, because, I mean, you can see some disagree, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> uh, you can see uh, an inmate in, in two different aspects. You can see, look at him as a criminal, 
or you can look at him as a person who has done something criminal. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at him as a person who has done something criminal, you accept that he is more than his criminal actions. And with that kind of attitude, you are on the right track with regard to treating people in, in a professional and humane manner. And it, Um, now, if you propose these kind of reforms in the United States, um, <laughs> see, I don't even have to think. <laughs> yeah. they, know, um, they know where he's going. One of the nicer things that might be said about you is that you're soft on crime. Mm. Um, how did you, in Norway, how did you guys sort of overcome some of the political challenges of putting some of these reforms in place and mm -hmm. moving to a more humane system? I think we have an advantage there because uh, the political landscape isn't that divided in Norway as it is in, uh, in the States. So I guess we, we, have, uh, we are more lucky uh, on that issue. How sh I mean, let me take North Dakota as an example. North Dakota has been in Halden prison, studied the way we do correctional services. And in a way, the, the director of the um, correctional department on the state level in North Dakota, uh, which is a uh, Republican state, if I remember it correctly, yeah. She could do, in a way, everything as long as she held, held it, in a way, outside the newspapers and the media. So if she just held it outside the newspapers, the governor gave her, gave her, in a way, carte blanche to do changes in the system. So it is possible also in the, in the United States, and you will see changes now in several states, actually. has been to Norway the last two, three years studying our approach. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Uh, in the U.S., I think we talk about prisoners. People joke about, don't drop the soap. I mean, people are, they're, they're mm. joke about treating people like in inhuman in ways. Mm. Um, I did a program where I spent a day at a prison, and by the end, the way it had opened up my eyes to the sort of humanity of the people in mm. this facility, the number of things that set them on this path starting at age 9 or 10 or 11 that got them mm. to where they were, um, I finally understood that. How do we change the way our culture views prisons and prisoners uh, and create more of a sense of empathy for people that might have made horrific, evil mistakes mm. in their lives, but mm. how do we get to a point where we're not judging them for that mistake forever? That's a big question in a way. I mean, I mean you have to see beyond the criminal activities. Don't misunderstand me. I do not defend in any way their actions but I see them as more as, uh, than criminals. You have to work on the issues that they uh, deal with in life. I mean, if you look at the average inmate in Norway, approximately 90% have some kind of uh, mental health issue, 60% are substance abusers, low educational level. You have to work on all those issues while they are in prison in order to have any kind of success. You ha and you have to start where should you start, in a way? You have to start changing how you refer to inmates. Uh, you have to look at them as individual people, not just a group of people. And you have to create a different environment in prison, really. If you don't create the right environment, in a way, the interaction won't work. Jan Strumnes, thank you so much for joining us. Really okay. appreciate thank it. Thank you. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. 
How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a Remax agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Any updates? Love yeah, I mean, One update. update. Does NATO still exist? Forgot, I mean, by the skin of its teeth. One thing that I forgot to mention that Donald Trump did compliment Norway. He said, one of, the great, one of your greatest assets is a thing called water. <laughs> shut, shut the fuck up. Is that real? Did That's he really real. say that? He was referring to hydropower. Congratulations on your water. Thank you. Fjords. Okay, we have time for a few questions. I'm Ranghel. What can we as Norwegians, we don't have any senators to call, what can we do to interfere in your elections? <laughs> how, are you with, how are you with computers? How are you with computers? If you can, if you can send Jared Kushner an email that says, hey, I'm IT. Yeah. Uh, send me your password. It's totally fine. Don't ask anybody else if this is okay. It's a tough... I, you know, we're joking, because I actually think it's a tough question. Should I do the pivot to serious thing? Please do. Okay. Uh, you can't interfere with our elections. Please don't. But... Uh, I guess technically you can. Collusion aside, uh, don't give up on us. Uh, we are probably more reflective of the majority of the country's views uh, on the world, uh, on America's role in the world, or values and aspirations, than uh, Donald Trump and the people who voted for him that you see uh, represented on TV. Uh, so don't give up on us. We want to engage with you and be a part of the global community. We're not going anywhere. Uh, we've fucked up in our elections before. We'll do it again. Uh, but we can't quit you. You're stuck with us. Hey guys, my name is Sverre. Thank you for a great evening. Um, Thank you for coming. You touched on Ben and you touched on the importance of 2018. I'm really curious though. What do you guys think about the Democratic chances of retaking the House and the Senate with and without Ben? I mean, isn't this a loss in the chance of actually taking back the chambers? You're saying Bannon was a false flag operation. Well, I mean, it's, it's, probably, it's certainly better for the world, I would think, on a you mean, big scale. But I'm thinking that Ben supporting these primary loose, crazy, nutballs, craziness, yeah, whatever, yeah. W wouldn't that help? I'm reminded, when we were researching for the game, we were looking for, uh, for headlines that we could smugly read back to people. There were a whole bunch of them that were like, look, guys, uh, the Republican Party just, you know, ended their chances by electing Donald Trump because he's too right-wing and extreme. So I will never again be sanguine about a, an extremist far-right candidate going forward. Roy Moore, was, it took him being a literal fucking child molester, allegedly, uh, <laughs> to fall out of favor with these people. So like, I'm not, I'm not cool playing the Machiavellian sort of politics that Bannon um, might be a net help. I think he's a cancer on the society. Uh, but he's still going to stick around. He's doing some right-wing, you know, dark money group, he says. He seems to be living in a fantasy world where everything's going fine. 
But so I think his, his brand of politics will still be around, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, Joe Arpaio announced on the day that Bannon stepped down from Breitbart. So these people aren't going away. He, Bannon's not like this master, you know, brain behind the operation where if he goes away, all the candidates just disappear. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, they're all there still being as crazy as ever. Um, <laughs> so, and if, and if, you know, and if Bannon doesn't give them a voice nationally, uh, they'll do it themselves or some other people. Wouldn't will. that be awesome? If he was like the first White Walker and he just That's took what him I out. <laughs> you know, Tommy, no, I was thinking of an analogy. That would, that would have been... Yeah, the, uh, it's just yeah. a, Bannon caught a ride on a tiger and the tiger threw him off, but the tiger's still roaming around he went looking with a for us looking for someone to eat. Who's the tiger, Trump? Or the party? Donald Trump is still on the tiger. <laughs> it's a very big tiger. It's a multi-seat. It's one of those tigers that has three rows of seats. And the, the back row folds down and up. It's a lie flat tiger. Yeah, it's a tiger XL. Is Bannon, is Bannon the ice dragon? Or? Oh. Spoiler. <laughs> Where, <laughs> where's Nora in Game of Thrones? You guys get in real time or you're like two years behind? Real time? That's cool. That's cool, a new, that's cool. cool. That's cool. Did we answer your question? <laughs> Hi, my Hello. name is Kelly. Uh, my question is short. Uh, I'm American, but now I live here. And I was. Where are you from of, before? I'm from Indiana. Cool. cool. I'm so sorry about my pants. <laughs> I know. He's everyone's problem now. You know what, yeah. though? I'm sorry, but you, I want It's not Indiana's... It's Indiana's fault. It's but, Indiana's fault. But the reason, the reason he ended up taking the VP job is because he was going to be rejected by Indiana. Yeah. Indiana had figured it out. Yeah. And he's like, I guess I'll catch this ride out of town. I'll lose and then retire to being a very weird person. But they... Yeah. <laughs> uh, they figured it out and also didn't in that you had people like uh, my mother who had a repeal Pence sign in her front yard who still voted for him when he was on like a national ballot, mm. which just blew my mind. So Tough. it's more complicated. But my question is not. <laughs> my question is not. And that is that I was one of the organizers of Women's March in Oslo last cool. year. Yeah. And so, thank you. Thank you to everyone who came out. It was a huge success, and I can confirm that we here are feeling the same energy and uh, activism that you are all feeling back in the United States. And you guys are now pod tours the world. And so I'm wondering with your new perspective, what you think that Americans outside of the United States can do to help advance the progressive cause. Uh, we worked uh, at the Stockholm event. We actually had uh, Democrats abroad there registering. Yes, oh, you yes. Good. Okay, good. I wasn't sure if you guys made it to Oslo too. Excellent. Are you part of Democrats abroad? That's great. So Democrats abroad should definitely register as many voters as they can who are expats around the world. We hope that happens. I also think we are finding out now that the old tactics of persuasion, television ads, mail pieces, all this other kind of stuff, they just don't work anymore in this environment, in this media environment, in this information environment. And what works, what really persuades people is to persuade people in your social circle, your family, your friends, your neighbors. So you have plenty of people back in Indiana, back in the United States that you know. Talk to them, have them talk to their friends. Like, 
we're going to end up winning this back, winning the House back, winning the Senate back, and ultimately the presidency back by having, you know, neighbors talking to neighbors and friends talking to friends and convincing people the old-fashioned way with grassroots politics. And even from over here, you can do that through social media, through email, through a whole bunch of other ways. So talk to all your friends back home and then have them talk to all their friends. And I think we can build the movement that way. Oslo, you have been fantastic. Thank you so much. We will see you again sometime. This is great. Yes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.